Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, we are talking about diabetes and better access to care. Also talking about another virus that we may have forgotten about during COVID, and that is shingles. Plus, adult ADHD in women. How does it affect them, especially their self-esteem? And there's lots of dead bedrooms. Tonight, we're talking to the dead. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. November marks National Diabetes Awareness Month. It's an important time of year for Canadians living with diabetes and their loved ones. It's an invisible condition that affects one in three Canadians and approximately one in two young adults will develop diabetes in their lifetime. Diabetes affects so many people. Joining me on the line, I have two fabulous guests tonight. My, my Muma, my Muna. Ismail is a patient who's been living with diabetes and also Lisa Max. I'm very excited. She's a diabetes clinical nurse specialist. Yes, another nurse is on the program. Good evening, Maimuna and Lisa. Are you both there? Yes. Thanks for having, Hi. Thanks for having me. It's Maimuna. You're so welcome. Here, yes. Wonderful. Thanks so much for joining the program. It's so hard for me to get nurses on the program. Um, so I'm very excited to have you, Lisa. <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. That's awesome. Now, Maimuna, you are a young professional, and you were misdiagnosed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Tell me a little bit about your story. Yeah. um, So, yes. So I was misdiagnosed um, back in January 2021. So about almost two years it's been for me. Um, So I just, just, I was having the regular symptoms that you would face when you're going experiencing like type 1 diabetes so frequent urination um thirsty all the time i was very tired um and then i had gone to the hospital they ran some tests and they saw that my blood sugar levels were elevated um and then because of my age at the time i was 26 they just assumed automatically it was type 2 diabetes um and that's when they um had prescribed me with metformin which is typically prescribed for type 2 diabetics and then after being on that for like about two days um my sugar levels weren't coming down and then I went back and then they that's when they realized it was type 1 diabetes so yeah it's it's, it was a misdiagnosis at first but I'm just grateful that I had my correct diagnosis in the end. Yes certainly Uh, Lisa can you explain to the audience um the difference between type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes? Yes. Uh, so I, your story is uh, ringing true with me, uh, Maimuna, because I've seen this uh, unfortunately happen before due to age where, you know, you're labeled with type 2 diabetes and you actually have type 1. But type 1 diabetes is where the pancreas um, just stops working. And it could be an autoimmune response. Uh, we're not exactly sure why it, it stops. Uh, often it's an um, a, a illness or a virus or something that triggers that autoimmune response and it attacks the ability of the pancreas to make insulin. And that means you need insulin injections for life. Um, as Maimuna realized, within a couple of days, the pills were not going to work for her. Whereas type 2 diabetes is where the ability to make pan- uh, insulin in the pancreas is uh, a slow, degenerative, sneaky little guy, as you mentioned. It's an invisible disease. Uh, so it, it um, kind of sneaks up on you over time. And you may be able to manage it with diet and then some pills and perhaps some insulin or non-insulin injectables that we have now. Uh, So that's the difference between the two. 
And are, is it typical that um, this type of mistake would be made? And, and is it mostly children who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes or adolescents? You bring up an interesting point, Maureen, is that it used to be called juvenile diabetes and adult onset mm -hmm. diabetes, right? So they've changed mm -hmm. the name to type 1 and type 2 because I've seen people as old as 72 in my um, practice where I used to work a direct line in the hospital um, in Ontario, actually. I've just moved to BC. <laughs> oh. uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, so I've seen uh, people in their 40s and 50s and as old as 72 diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, but we originally thought type 2. And there are children as young as, in, to my knowledge, as young as the age of 6 in some communities that have higher incidence of diabetes in their community with type 2 diabetes. So we can never make an assumption that someone just because they're young has type 1 and just because they're older that they have type 2. And how is that diagnosis made, actually, between the, di the, different, the differential diagnosis, I guess? How does one determine that it's type 1 versus type 2? Well, clinically, you're going to see someone, uh, when they come into hospital, if they react, as Mimuna had said, she was given metformin, mm -hmm. and it didn't work for her. So we know automatically that, you know, there's, if your sugars are still rising and you're, you're getting pills, it's obviously not working. But there's something called C-peptide, and that's a measure of how much insulin is left in the pancreas. So it's like measuring the, the um, fuel in your gas tank. You have a gauge. And this would be exactly, is the gauge high? Then you've got lots of insulin. If the gauge is low, then you don't have much insulin and you likely are type 1. Right. Now, my, my Muma, my Muna, um, sorry, um, this had to be, you know, quite a shock for you to be diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at the age of, of 26. You're, you know, a young professional carrying on with your career. All of a sudden, you get these symptoms, frequent urination, um, thirst, excessive thirst, kind of out of the blue. This had to be pretty challenging for you. What was it like to get this news? Yeah, so it was definitely a shock because initially, um, because I was tired all the time, I thought it was maybe I was low on iron. I thought maybe it was like something to do with my thyroid. So that's why I got the blood work done. Mm -hmm. um, so when I saw it was type 1 diabetes, I was completely shocked and I understood like it was going to be a complete lifestyle change for me um, with the frequent injections. I was put on insulin injections immediately. So getting used to that was difficult. Um, and then also having to like explain to my friends like what's going on and educate people on what type 1 diabetes is. That was like a bit of a hurdle for me. Um, so mm -hmm. I, living at 26 years old being diagnosed, I had 26 years of like normalcy and then having a complete up shift of like my daily routine um it, so it was a bit difficult but i think um, i'm so like grateful that um it's like 2022 and we have so many technologies um that help assist with type 1 diabetes so i'm on like the dexcom g6 which is a C one of the cgms that's out there in the market and it's like really really great it helps show where my blood sugar levels are rather than doing finger pricks so i think with like technologies out there today it's been like i'm very grateful for them and it's been it's made my journey a bit easier. And that's CGM, that's Continuous Glucose Monitoring for those who are not familiar with that acronym. Um, and, you know, this year for National Diabetes Awareness Month, physicians and patients are asking Canadians to see diabetes. You know, ha in fact, that's the hashtag, see diabetes, because it's an incredibly challenging and complex condition. And so they're asking patients like yourself, 
to share their personal journeys and what it's like to live with diabetes and show decision makers that everyone with diabetes deserves access to the care they need. Lisa, is this something that Canadians are experiencing? They're not actually getting access to care. And has that been compounded by the pandemic? Absolutely. Um, I have nursed for over 30 years and I've been in diabetes for 18. And I have to say that the single most advance in technology or in diabetes management has been continuous glucose monitoring. I have watched people try to do the best they can with finger pokes, finger, you know, checking their, their um, blood sugar six, eight times a day, poking their fingers, trying to see what, what their glucose is doing. And when the minute you put one of these on, someone can see whether the effect of their food, their activity, um, their uh, medications or insulin that they're taking, they can see what's, what the effect of it is. So it's, a, it's something that should, I believe, they should be given to people in a pre-diabetes state, even for a couple of weeks, just to see what's going on with the food that you're eating. I, I in fact, um, uh, recently had a friend try one of these, and she said, oh, my gosh, I'm eating cereal at lunch every day. I watch my sugars go up. And now I'm not going to have cereal every day. It makes an amazing difference. And I think that everyone should have access, even if it's for a short period of time. The access in BC is four injections of insulin a day um, to get a Dexcom G6. Libre 2 is not covered. That's the other. um, It's called an intermittent scan, CGM. Um, That isn't covered unless you have private pay. Um, and people are waiting sometimes several months to get the authorization once the endocrinologist or the physician has written that they, uh, the request to the government to get the Dexcom. They have to wait several months in some cases for the approval to come in, which means they're ready to go. So, Maimuna, I, I know it's been two years for you, but you can imagine when you first were diagnosed with this, you want as much information as you can get. And to put a Dexcom on, you can actually see the the effect of this. So you shouldn't have to wait for months to get this device. And there's people who don't have access at all. We need more access to these devices. Absolutely. And, and do other Canadians, Canadians across the country and other provinces, do they have access to CGMs? So I can speak to Ontario, um, and I, um, the Libre uh, was the one that was covered in Ontario for one injection of insulin a day, so you still needed to be mm-hmm. on insulin. And I still feel like that's waiting for the horse to be out of the barn. So mm-hmm. exactly. we need to focus on prevention. And if we can put these devices on for two weeks every six months, just for people to see what is working. Uh, the Dexcom is covered in Ontario for type 1 diabetes only, and it's um, mm-hmm. private pay in, in, in addition for either of the devices. Uh, so right. the access is very limited, and I can't speak to the other provinces, unfortunately. We are talking National Diabetes Awareness Month because November marks National Diabetes Awareness Month. And my guests are Maimuna Ismail. She's a young professional, originally misdiagnosed during the COVID-19 pandemic with type 2 diabetes, but has actually got type 1 diabetes. And also Lisa Max, a diabetes clinical nurse specialist. Maimuna, you mentioned that um, this innovative technology is what helped you navigate the diagnosis of type 1 diabetes during the pandemic. 
uh, how easy was that? And, you know, did you grow more confident as time went on because of that device, the CGM, the continuous glucose monitoring device? Right. So as mentioned, it did take a few months to actually receive approval from um, BC, um, I guess, health authority to get my CGM. So but then once I was approved for the Dexcom, um, I just began using it. And yes, it just made it a lot easier um, because I wasn't keen on multiple injections, I mean, multiple finger pricks a day with um, the other device that I was using. So um, with the CGM, the Dexcom that I use, it's pretty great. And it honestly, like it allows, it gives you that bit of discretion that you need to just check your blood sugars. And especially if you're around people, or if you're in a meeting, for example, you don't want to like go aside and like actually prick your fingers to check your blood sugar levels. So I think mm-hmm. it, yes, it really did help um, me navigate like it, how my diabetes diagnosis, but then it also allowed me to see how different foods ex- affect my body. Um, so mm-hmm. in the morning for breakfast, yeah, you learn a lot. Away. Exactly. Exactly. You really learn the effects that your that, um, I mean, your different foods have on your blood sugar levels. Like for example, I had a fried chicken sandwich yesterday and, um, <laughs> and it increased my blood sugar levels, um, for a bit. And then, but then three hours later, because there's so much fat in it, it your blood sugar levels go elevated again. So I also use, um, a pump, an insulin pump that helps me in, inject my insulin as well. I think technology overall has been great for my um, journey with diabetes. I think so. I think this is one medical condition where technology has really changed the game. Lisa, what's it going to take for this, for government officials to understand the, you know, the benefits of CGM and also insulin pumps and all the technologies? When are are they going to catch up with the technology and how, how can they do that? Because there is a stigma uh, to this condition as well. So what does it take? Oh, I wish they could catch up. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> you know, as I said, I've been doing this a long time and to watch people have to try to guess what their sugars is, are. And Maymuna can speak to this. I'm sure that she's had an incident where, incident where her, she's watched her glucose start to go low and been able to catch it before it actually goes low. So there's alerts mm-hmm. that go on to prevent you from having a hypoglycemic or low blood sugar event, which means you don't call the ambulance. You don't have to go to the hospital. You don't have to sit in emergency. That's money. That's where right, that's what's costing the government. So, you know, having to take glucagon because you've had a low, a low blood sugar and then trying to recover from the glucagon and losing a day's work, that's money. You know, it's that time of year when Canadians, especially older adults and seniors, are thinking about immunization, immunization for influenza and bivalent COVID boosters. But it's also a very good time to consider vaccination for another virus, the shingles virus. It's an infectious disease, not always top of mind during a pandemic, but one that can cause a painful blistering rash, lasting nerve pain, and can interrupt one's quality of life. In Canada, Shingles affects an estimated 130,000 Canadians annually, and older adults and those with conditions that compromise the immune system have the greatest risk for developing shingles. 90% of Canadian adults above the age of 50 have had chickenpox and therefore are at risk for shingles, and an estimated 30% will develop shingles in their lifetime, and the risk increases to 50% 
for those who live to the ripe old age of 85. Joining me on the line is the Medical Health Officer for Alberta Health Services in Calgary and a Clinical Assistant Professor at the University of Calgary. He is Dr. Gia Hugh. Good evening, Dr. Hu. Uh, good evening. How are you? I'm, I'm well, and, and yourself? I'm very well, uh, sort of. <laughs> I'm actually not the best that I've been, to be honest with you. <laughs> I've oh, been no. uh, fighting a, no, a non-COVID cold for about three weeks that just doesn't seem to want to leave me. But anyway, <laughs> enough those are, those about me. No, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've this nasty Brutal. cough as well, oh, uh, but enough about the, me as well. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I, I, you know, yeah, it's just not going away. And I think I get better and then I don't get better. I get a tiny bit worse. Anyway, well, I'm delighted to have you on the program because this is such a very important subject because I know people who've had shingles. A lot of my patients have had shingles and it's mm -hmm. so painful and they can get that post-herpetic neuralgia, that post-herpetic pain, and it is just brutal. But if you don't mind just defining for the listeners, what exactly is or are shingles? <laughs> Yeah, no, and I think you did a great job explaining what shingles was at the beginning. Um, but you know, shingles is a is a is a virus that can um, <coughs> sorry that pesty cough that can you know affect <laughs> can affect you. Um, it's basically caused from a reactivation of chickenpox, and you know most people who are a bit older have had chickenpox when they were younger, and sometimes that virus goes a bit dormant, um, but then it reactivates and it can cause shingles which is this quite nasty painful rash that comes with it quite a lot of um you know pain that's often described as sort of electric in nature uh, it can get a bit more complicated and have the post-herpetic neurology you're talking about which is this this long lasting pain that's hard to go away you know even a, it was earlier this year i think um um, that, that Justin Bieber actually came down with a complication of shingles called Randy Hett syndrome. So it can really affect some of the nerves in your ears and your eyes as well. But I mean, I think the bottom line is, is that, you know, shingles causes quite a painful viral condition caused by reactivation of the chickenpox virus. Um, and because so many people have had chickenpox when they're younger, so many people are susceptible to getting shingles. Right. You know, I, I, I'm curious because I, I knew the answer to this and I don't remember it, but one of the doctors that I have worked with for a number of years, he was away on a trip and he came back and, you know, he's not a hugger and he gave me a hug when he got back. And, um, and then later somebody told me that he had shingles and I'm like, Oh great. You know, he's a non hugger. He hasn't hugged me for 10 years. And all of a sudden he hugs me, but he's got shingles. He must be feeling vulnerable. And, um, but is it contagious? I knew it. I, I remember asking and now I don't remember the answer. So <laughs> for the listeners is shingles contagious. I, you know, it, 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 it can be in the sense that, you know, usually, I mean, chicken pox is quite contagious. But shingles, mm -hmm. I mean, basically because it is reactivation of the chickenpox, it can be. But we usually say it isn't contagious so long as it's covered. So, you know, so long as that person hugged you with a shirt on, it probably won't be contagious. Mm -hmm. um, you need sort of he like skin-to-skin <laughs> contact. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. But you need the skin-to-skin the -skin contact with an like, open rash for it to be sort of spreadable. Um, and so we normally think of it traditionally as sort of something you just get from, well, reactivation of the chickenpox virus yourself. Um, but in some cases, mm -hmm. you can give somebody 
chicken pox, so to speak, from shingles, uh, but it's a bit less common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, and so I was just like, I, I mean, we were laughing so hard, and then I said to him, you know, later, I'm like, you have shingles and you hugged me? You never hugged me. <laughs> but um, you needed a hug. the other thing is, yeah, exactly. I think he needed it, um, for sure. No, so also, who is at greatest risk? Like, I, I'm also curious if people, I know I talked a little bit about people who are older, but how about people, and so many people today are stressed. You know, when people are run down, like that's when I see in my clinical practice, they might be under the age of 50 and they may have shingles um, because, you know, of the lives people are leading today, the workplace, you know, financial stressors, you know, marital stressors, kid stressors, homeschooling. Does that actually increase your risk um, factor you know, of forgetting um, shingles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as with a lot of things, you know, we can only say that certain things increase your likelihood. Age is a really big predictor, as you've called out. Another really big predictor is basically being immunocompromised. Um, you know, so people that have immunocompromising conditions, like let's say an autoimmune condition, or taking medications that weaken their immune system are also at higher risk. Um, you know, we do traditionally think of shingles as affecting older people, um, but it can affect people in their 20s, 30s, 40s as well. Um, and in terms of sort of what can trigger it, I mean, I, I think that, you know, there's this sort of baseline susceptibility based on your age and the other medical conditions you have. Um, but being really stressed out probably can cause a, a triggering event, actually. Um, but we, you know, we really do think of it as sort of an age-based or immune system-based illness primarily. Mm-hmm. And is that in general because as people age, their immune systems have a tendency to weaken? Yeah, I think it's partly bad. And, you know, I guess the other part is that there's more time for that chickenpox virus to reactivate. Um, but, I, you know, I don't think we entirely know why it's so linked with age. Um, but, you know, mm-hmm. a combination of sort of the weaker immune system, maybe more chance for the virus to uh, reactivate is what causes it to, to shingles to sort of manifest when it does. Mm-hmm. And, and it's typically on one side of the body. Is that correct? Yeah, it, it, I mean, classically speaking, it's sort of like it follows a, a dermatome, which is this fancy way of mm-hmm. saying a sort of a, a nerve distribution. But you, you'd see it sort of like as a as a line across your your chest or across your back. Um, but it can sort of present in all sorts of unusual ways. And so normally, I, I begin to think of shingles in a patient. If you know somebody's a little bit older. They, I mean, if they have a rash that follows a linear pattern, if the pain is described as, you know, quite intense, quite electric, that's when I start thinking about shingles. Mm-hmm. And, and is there this, like, crop of white bumps? Is that um, one of the signs of shingles or impending shingles? Um, I think they can sort of impend, like, like, manifest in a lot of different ways. I don't know about white bumps, maybe, actually. Um, usually, I think mm-hmm. that the, the rash is more red. Um, it might be like little b- bubbles sort of on your skin, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe you see some white bumps. But um, it is something where you often feel um, an unusual sensation before the rash starts. And that can also be indicative mm-hmm. of shingles. I think by the time, you know, you start wondering about it, though, it's uh, probably good to go check out your family doctor to see what they you know, think it is. Mm-hmm. And do people have a tendency to feel tired and kind of under the weather or a little feverish yeah, or yeah. any of those types of symptoms? 
They, they, they and how long does... Oh, go ahead. Oh, 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 I was going to say, yeah, they can feel some of those prodromal symptoms, um, like fatigue. Um, and, and sorry, I cut you off, but you're going to ask me another question. That's okay. No, no, I, I, I cut you off. We're, we're, they'd rather hear from you, believe you me, the listeners. <laughs> um, how long does shingles last once somebody is diagnosed with it? Um, you know, we, we estimate for a lot of people last for two to four weeks, um, which I mean, is actually pretty long, uh, given how painful it can be. Um, but then, you know, mm-hmm. again, at the very beginning, you talked about some of the chronic conditions of shingles, like post-herpetic neuralgia, um, and that can last for years, actually. Uh, but for many, it's, um, you know, it's a sort of a few weeks course illness. And, and what is the treatment immediately? Um, for somebody who's been diagnosed with shingles? Um, I, you, know, you know, immediately when it comes to shingles, I think there's the general stuff we can take for rash pain, you know, like the Advils, the Tylenols. But when it comes to uh, shingles, because it is sort of a caused by that virus, there are specific um, antivirals that one can take, um, like valacyclovir mm-hmm. or salclovir, um, you know, Valtrex essentially. And so those treatments can you know, shorten the length and the severity of the illness. And you kind of want to take them as soon as the rash appears, right? So the sooner you start the medications, the antivirals, the better. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I have suggested to some of my patients who have taken the antivirals and but are still having that pain, you know, to cut down on sugar and cut out alcohol and that kind of thing. And you know, I don't, I don't know if it's a placebo effect, to be honest with you, but some have reported back. In fact, one patient brought me chocolates and alcohol <laughs> and a bottle of wine um, because <laughs> they said it was so helpful. Um, but are, are dietary um, changes, you know, beneficial? Um, you know, I, I, it's not something I've recommended before, but if it's working for your patients, I mean, I think we'd all use, a, I think, a bit of a cut down on our sugar and alcohol intake. And so in that case, <laughs> I mean, if it works for your patients, that's awesome. Dr. Gia Hu is my guest. He's a medical officer of health for Alberta Health Services in uh, Calgary. And uh, we are talking shingles, you know, that painful, blistering rash, lasting nerve pain that can interrupt your quality of life. Dr. Hu, thanks so much for staying on the line uh, Uh, to continue talking. Oh, to continue talking about shingles. Um, (laughs) Thanks. How can you prevent shingles? Um, well, the single best way to prevent shingles uh, really is, is to is to get vaccinated, and, th- and there's a wonderfully uh, effective vaccine against shingles that's you know more than ninety five percent effective at protecting you against shingles and its complications. And so, is this a one time dose? It's um, well, it's it's a one once in a lifetime. Uh, you get it. Um, there's two doses. Uh, one let's say you get today, and the second one you get two months from now. Uh, but it is effective for at least 10 to 15 years. And so as far as we can tell, it's just sort of like a one and done, which is really great. That is amazing. Now, you know, vaccines have been politicized during the pandemic. Um, you know, is vaccine, are, are people tending not to get uh, the shingles vaccine? Is there less uptake or are they, you know, a little complacent about vaccine? Or is it just a matter of they don't, a lot of people don't realize that there is a vaccine for shingles? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a few things, right? I, I, I think that during COVID, what happened was it was hard to get a lot of 
healthcare stuff done, whether it was routine vaccinations or getting screened for cancer um, or just seeing your doctor in general, right? Lots of stuff was shut down. And that did lead to a decrease in uptake of, of, of all vaccines. Um, so that's sort of one factor. You know, as far as I can tell, I don't think people um, sort of concerns around COVID vaccines is sort of bleeding over into other vaccines like a shingles vaccine, uh, which is a good mm-hmm. thing. Um, but I mean, I, I think another so that that's good. Um, one thing about shingles vaccine, though, and a lot of some of the newer vaccines is that they aren't actually publicly funded, and so people need to pay for them themselves, um, or um, if they have private insurance, have it have it um, be covered through that. I think that remains sort of a barrier for a lot of people because I mean, I think that these vaccines, you know, should be free, especially if they're as good as the shingles vaccine. Uh, but unfortunately, that's just not always the case. Uh, absolutely, I agree with you that they should be covered because actually the shingles vaccine is fairly expensive, isn't it? Is it around a couple hundred dollars or? Yeah, yeah, it's about a, a one fifty a shot, so three hundred. That's right. Most. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's that's right. Yeah. For, yeah. Yeah, and that's prohibitive for a lot of people, especially a lot of older people who totally. should actually be getting this. Yeah, who should be getting this vaccine. Um, can you get the shingles vaccine at the same time as the flu and or COVID vaccines? Yes, you can. In fact, a friend of mine just got all three of them last week on Friday. <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> she was stealing it afterwards. But really, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really efficient way of doing it. Now, you know, only go to right. the pharmacy side effects one. <laughs> so, um, but you absolutely That's can. right. Yeah, you could get side effects from all three of them, though, which is pain, redness at the site, fever, chills, yeah. muscle aches, joint pain, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. So you don't need, and, and you just have to wait. Two, is it two to six months in between shots or? Yeah, exactly. So two months to six months after. Um, and so, yeah, and the really good thing again is once you get it once, you don't ever have to get it again. Yeah, that's amazing. And do you need a prescription for the shingles vaccine? Uh, you don't. Actually, so, you know, your pharmacist generally is able to, you know, get one in for you. Uh, sometimes to get it covered, insurance plan, um, getting insurance, like getting a prescription is helpful. Um, you don't need one just to get the vaccine itself. Oh, that's amazing. And so people can just turn up to any pharmacy, drugstore and ask yeah. for the shing- to have the shingles vaccine administered and the, the pharmacist administers the shingles vaccine? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that is amazing. It's it's convenient. We try to make it convenient. Yeah, that certainly is. Now it would make it a lot more convenient if the government would just cover it. You know, it's just so difficult when the government decides not to cover something like this again. Something that is preventive. You know, preventive health is so important because this can be a very debilitating condition, especially for seniors who might have that persistent post-herpetic neuralgia. Would you say that's a fair statement? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, and I, I think that the issue of, of covering vaccines is, I mean, it's great that COVID vaccines cover. It's great that the flu vaccines are covered every year. Um, but there's a lot of vaccines that, you know, are recommended by groups like the National Advisory Community Immunization that aren't covered. Mm-hmm. And you know, something that Chico is one of the best vaccines that isn't covered. That isn't covered. Um, but it's something that, you know, as you say, really should be because. You know, prevention is a lot more effective and cost-effective than treatment, than treatment. So something to keep working on together, trying to get these things covered. 
It certainly is. I know it. It's a battle that I've been fighting for years on on so many different uh, things. If if some we have about a minute left, but if somebody's out there listening and they're kind of on the fence about whether they, or not they should get the shingles vaccine, what would you say to them? Oh, I'd say I mean it's uh, really one of the best vaccines we have, and shingles is one of the most painful conditions you can have. And, you know, you put the two together, one of the best things you can do this year, um, you know, if you're over the age of 50 or have a weakened immune system and are a bit younger, is to go, uh, you know, book that appointment at your pharmacist to get that shingles vaccine. Um, you know, it is, uh, it's, it's highly effective. You don't want to get shingles, as Maureen's been saying. Uh, it's just a great thing to do for your health. Dr. Jiahu, thank you so much for joining me on the program tonight. I really appreciated your time and the information. It was awesome. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Happy Sunday. You got questions? She's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Thanks so much for tuning in this evening. Really appreciate that. Uh, In this hour, we're going to be talking about um, dead bedrooms. And you'd be surprised um, where the, uh, the lifeless bedrooms are. <laughs> and we're also going to be talking to the dead with anger management specialist, Alistair Moose. That's at the half hour at nine, at, uh, nine thirty or 1130, depending where you are in Canada. And, uh, but right now we're going to be continuing our conversation because it's such an important conversation about adult ADHD or attention deficit disorder. Uh, last week, Dr. Parhar, Dr. Gurdeep Parhar, joined me on the line. Dr. Parhar is the medical director of the Adult ADHD Center in Vancouver, British Columbia, where over 12,000 adults have been assessed for ADHD. The Adult ADHD Center provides ADHD services across Canada. You can go to adultadhdcenter.com for more information. And joining me on the line right now, because we got cut off last week, is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. We're going to focus in a little bit on women's symptoms of adult ADHD. And then we're going to be talking to Dr. Tomi Mitchell, who's joined the program many times before, talk about the impact that has on women's self-esteem in the workplace. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on again. I I realized we ran out of time that last time. Thank you. We did. We did run out of time. And so it's very important because there's a distinction between uh, adult ADHD or ADHD symptoms in boys and men and adult ADHD symptoms in women. So just quickly recap, if you don't mind, the symptoms we typically see in, in boys or men. Yeah, so in, in, in boys, we tend to see um, a lot of the physical hyperactive symptoms. So boys tend to be a little bit more rambunctious, the class clown, not able to sit still. They still have the attention issues, Maureen. They still have the difficulties concentrating. But a lot of it is more physical hyperactivity. And that's one of the stereotypes that unfortunately leads us to not understand ADHD and everyone else. Um, but what we're understanding now is that with females, um, what happens is that they tend to be not so much the physically hyperactive, although some can be, but little girls tend to be a bit more inattentive. So, Maureen, they're the ones that are sitting in the classroom daydreaming. They're the ones that are, um, their, their mind is somewhere else or they're zoning out. So why is that important? That distinction is important, Maureen, is because boys are two to three times more likely to be identified than girls are because a little boy um, is rebunctious, he's causing problems, and the teacher says to the parents, go get, go get this looked into because he's disrupting my class. 
whereas the little girls are actually quite pleasant. They're quite, um, you know, a joy to have in the class. And their report cards will read something like, you know, it was a pleasure to have in my class, but she would be a bit more successful if she focused a bit more. And so unfortunately what that means is that boys are two to three times more likely to be identified with ADHD than girls are. Um, and so that's the first big difference is that when we see um, people in our in our adult practice, a lot of girls, um, young women, and then you know, female teenagers have been missed over their youth, and now they're struggling as adults. And so what are the symptoms that, are, as you told us last week, educated us about that, you know, this is not a childhood illness for many people. It actually continues into adulthood. So what are some of the struggles that women have um, who have adult ADHD that have gone undiagnosed? What are, what are some of their symptoms? Yeah, so, so there, there's quite a few. And so one of the distinctions are that males tend to externalize their symptoms a little bit more where females internalize them. And unfortunately, what that means is that you know, they're more likely to have secondary anxiety or mood problems. Um, they, they try to cope by working harder, so they're burning out. And when you think about where they are in life, if they're in school, they'll be having academic problems, whether it's college or university or high school. Um, sometimes they involve themselves in risky behaviors or substance use, um, and whether it's alcohol or, or um, uh, drugs. Um, they may binge eat, they may binge drink. Um, sometimes they get involved in relationships that they otherwise would not get involved in. Um, self-esteem issues, I think you said your next guest is going to speak about that. But when, when, when these activities happen, then, they, then there's that whole sense of self-worth and self-confidence and self-esteem that gets hurt. Um, they're, they're peer relationships, um, you know, relationships with one another. What we're understanding, Marina, is that there's probably two other components here. One is that we know that the hormones have an impact. So estrogen and cycling um, does impact um, females' ability to concentrate and stay attentive. So there's certain times of the month and then certainly around menopause where the, the inattention or the focus problems get worse. And the other, part, the other issue is really a social one, is that females tend to, tend to conform or want to conform because that's sort of what society expects of them. And so there's an unfair expectation on females where the boys may act out and the young men and the men may act out, but females tend to internalize these and then, and then feel badly about themselves when they don't hold themselves up to whatever they think or society's um, expectations of them are. So there's several components here that make it really difficult. And what we're understanding now is that females' journey, women's journey through ADHD is quite different and unique than what boys and males go through. And, and frankly, you know, that little Johnny bouncing around the classroom may not be the little Jane who's sitting quietly and, um, you know, a pleasure to have in the class. But Jane is going to struggle and Jane is going to become an adult with ADHD and have it impact all parts of her life. Yeah, I can imagine. And and is it safe to say that some women may not be diagnosed until menopause? Uh, quite quite a bit later. And what we're understanding now is that there's nothing magical about those 19 candles or 18 candles um, when you're 18. What we're understanding now is that 50 to 80% of children become teenagers with ADHD. And teenagers with ADHD, more than 50%, we think about 60% of them become adults with ADHD. And so it's about 5% of the population. So one in 20 people have ADHD. So it's fairly common. And why we got involved in it is that it has such a big impact on so many different parts of life that, you know, these adults are struggling. And, and, and I guess the hope here is now that we're talking about it more, it's more on social media and everywhere else, sitcoms, is that we want people to, you know, get, it, get attention to it and, um, and get it assessed. And, and because there is mm -hmm. treatment there, both medication and non-medication treatments. 
And that's, and that's giving so much hope to people out there who might be listening. And again, if somebody's out there listening who's been struggling, who's been you know, having issues with substance abuse and, and also struggling at work, struggling to manage the kids and, and manage it all, and having anxiety and internalizing their troubles and thinking there's something damaged about them, what, what would you say to them in terms of getting an assessment? I think the first step is to go to your health practitioner. So if it's your um, family physician, if it's your nurse practitioner, if it's your counselor, your psychologist, go to them and start the conversation. Um, they have screening tools or they can direct you to someone who has screening tools to see if you have it. Um, and then you can be referred either to a center like ours, the adultadhdcenter.com, or a psychiatrist or a psychologist to clarify whether or not you have it. And then, as I said, Maureen, medications are a last resort. You know, people always talk about medicines, and there's people have stigma around the medicines for ADHD. And so, firstly, I would say that medications are a last resort. We encourage people to use coaches and counselors and lifestyle changes to manage their ADHD. It's only when those aren't working then that we move on to the medications. And, and the wonderful news is that the medications do work for the majority of people if they need them. Um, and That's so wonderful. They, yeah, and, and li- li- lives dramatically change. People say that, you know, the, the metaphor is my brain has glasses, the fog's lifted, and they just put someone on a different journey in life. That's fantastic. Dr. Parhar, thank you so much for coming back and explaining about adult ADHD in women. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Raymond, and thank you so much for the opportunity to raise awareness on this. You are so welcome. Uh, next up, uh, you've heard her voice before. Dr. Tomi Mitchell is a medical doctor. She deals in wellness and performance. She deals with also a lot of people in the workplace, whether they be professionals or at every level of the workplace. She helps to reduce burnout and overwhelm so that people can increase productivity in the workplace. This may be an area, adult ADHD in women and men, where people may not be as productive as they would like to me. She's joining me on the line, and we're going to talk a little bit about this. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm okay. How are you doing? You know, loving this hour change and adjusting. Uh, (laughs) I know, honestly. The extra hour of sleep is kind of nice. But to help those of us who are burned out, Anyway, you maybe me for sure. Um, no, you were talking about adult ADHD in women, and you know lives today are so busy. There's there are so many responsibilities, especially for women who are working inside and outside of the home, who are maybe homeschooling their kids still, who are you know trying to navigate COVID and their aging parents, and they just have a lot on their plate. Um, what? What is a diagnosis of ADHD in a woman? Um, what what can that do to a woman? Woman, or what can living with that undiagnosed, I should say, <clears throat> first? How can that impact her productivity, her burnout quotient, her stress level? Yes, undiagnosed ADHD can have a tremendous impact in a woman's life and everyone who's connected to the woman. Oftentimes, when they finally get diagnosed. It's their adults, and it's like the shock, relief, the tears, and the frustration, to, but also the happiness to understand why their life has been often chaotic. Like, they try so hard to stay organized. They have lists for lists, but they feel like they're not getting ahead. They're forgetful. Maybe boss is saying that they're not paying attention. They're missing um, promotions. Like, they're losing out, and it's catching up on them despite their best efforts to have behavioral changes or more, be more organized. 
So it's a, a huge impact, not only in the work, but especially in the home. And I can't mm-hmm. show that significant impact. And and do you find that women have a tendency to medicate their pain through alcohol or other substances as well when they're undiagnosed? Not as much as the men. I find the men, they tend to get more in trouble with the alcohol, um, the sex, often getting in trouble with the law. Like women, it tends to internalize it because women, the way we communicate with, traditionally is more with nonverbal cues. So women with ADHD may not be paying attention to those things she might not just have the grasp of it so she's missing a lot of the communication um, in the workplace so it's not it's challenging for her so uh, Uh men and women generally there's like there's a significant difference in the two absolutely and i would imagine that both would be prone to depression and anxiety as well yes Oftentimes, we see diagnosis of depression before the diagnosis of the ADHD. Well, in fact, the depression came before, sorry, the ADHD was there before the depression. Depression was a result of hitting your head against the wall, being frustrated, not getting where you need to be. Knowing you're smart, but just not getting it, right? Wow. It's going to be saddening and frustrating. Dr. Tomi Mitchell is my guest. She is an expert medical doctor in wellness and performance and prevention of burnout and overwhelm. Dr. Mitchell, we're talking ADHD, adult ADHD in men and women. There, Dr. Gurdi Parhar mentioned there are some conservative measures for treatment. What would some of those recommendations be that you would provide to your patients before you would suggest medication for somebody who's been diagnosed with adult ADHD? Well, I'll make sure that they don't have any other existing medical condition as in anxiety, depression, because we often see other conditions. So if we don't treat, have a good look, we can run into challenges. Definitely organization, lifestyle things. So with every condition we talk about, unhealthy diet, are you eating a bunch of junk? Are you, are you not meal planning? Are you eating a rainbow? How much exercise you are doing? Because we know that people with ADHD on the rest of us benefit from being outside, enjoying the fresh air. What organizational um, strategies do you have in place? What systems in place, right? Having habits that help you stay grounded and having people in your life who you can stay accountable to. Those are all really great ways to treat it. But quite frankly, for most women who an adult who have a diagnosis, they've tried those things, right? Because uh-huh. these women are smart women. You know, they, they know they try to be organized. They try their best, but they're hitting the wall. So, yes, it would be great if this made a you know a huge impact. But for many, they've already tried it and something is missing. And, and so would you then recommend they go on to medication, move on to medication? I do. Honestly, I've, I've, in my practice, I've found that patients, adult patients have had a profound improvement, like, life-changing improvement and it doesn't mean they're going to be on it for life but at least let's get this um, frontal part of your brain executive functioning piece functioning so you could have clarity as you work through things Um, Mm -hmm. I just I just find it's beneficial in many cases and and what are some of those medications are they the same ones that we hear about for children like the Ritalin and Adderall's Pretty much. ADHD, well, there really hasn't been a ton of money put into it as far as new medications. So, yeah, you're uh-huh. right. The Ritalin, which would be the earlier ones, maybe 
some more long-acting medications, we call it Concerta, um, Stratera, Adderall. It, to my knowledge, it hasn't really changed in uh-huh. the past few years. It's pretty standard treatment. And you mentioned and then, treating the anxiety. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. No, I was just saying um, there's different options, and we have to try something till it works, right? Not just like any other treatment. You know, might not the first right. medication might work. You may have to tweak it and do this. But the key is working with a provider who believes in mental illness. And like, I just can't stress there are enough people out there who don't agree with it, don't think it's real, or don't take it seriously, or don't understand it. So then there, it's hard for them to really connect with their patients. So finding centers like the doctor who just spoke, who are passionate about mental health, makes a world of difference. Because the last thing you want is to go there care provider and they're like oh no it's not real it's fine you're good and kind of fluff you off because that might be the one and only chance you actually talk to someone about it so please like go to people who are passionate about mental illness wow that you make such a great point because yeah a lot of people especially women may have been dismissed by their doctors because that's a common occurrence in uh, many medical practices. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And you also mentioned, and we only have about 30 seconds left here, um, treating the depression or the anxiety. And that's is as important probably as treating the ADHD, I would imagine. Yes, it it is. It's very important. We have to take a holistic whole person approach and not miss anything. We certainly do. Dr. Tommy Mitchell, once again, thank you so much for your contribution to the Sunday Night Health Show. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show, the final stroke of the program. Sometimes there's no stroke. Some recent statistics tell an unusual story. A survey, a 2021 survey of adults ranging in age from 18 to 45 across the U.S. that was conducted by the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University and sex retailer Love Honey showed that among married adults, millennials were the most likely to report problems with sexual desire in the past year. The survey showed 25.8% of married millennials reported this problem, while only 10.5% of the younger married Gen Z and 21.2% of the slightly older married Gen X adults reported the same. There are dead bedrooms at a time when Millennials should be at their sexual prime. Why are so many couples reporting major dry spells? There are a number of reasons, and this goes along with my clinical practice. I see a lot of millennials in my clinical practice, and oftentimes they're thinking of walking down the aisle, which is which is the good news. They're actually thinking about this. They're in a dead bedroom situation, and they're thinking about whether they should walk down the aisle or not. So this definitely is a trend that I have been seeing. Many factors can lead to a sexless or what we call a low sex marriage. There could be a desire discrepancy. There can also be um, an imbalance of how a couple deals with it. There can be internalization. Definitely it leads to anger and frustration. And also, um, you know, it can lead to loneliness and you know, there's things that millennials, their their jobs are, are quite different. They started working during the Great Recession. There's this idea that they have to prove themselves. There's high stress associated with a lot of the jobs. And so mental health issues are also a major contributor in addition to medical health issues. And these can make sex impossible, can make sex painful, 
difficult or undesirable. These busy lives, they might be um, dealing with kids and with work schedules, can remove sex from the equation, as can poor communication about each partner's desires. As I mentioned, this can lead to frustration and sadness and divorce. We need to be talking about these subjects. And, you know, many of the couples that I see are angry. They are extremely angry. And so it is something that people definitely should get the help for. Um, reach out to a sex therapist, your healthcare provider, somebody, because there are treatments, but you have to know what the problem is. Once again, millennials should be at their sexual prime and not posting all over the R dead bedrooms on a subreddit on the social media platform, Reddit, which is a self-described discussion group for Redditors who are coping with a relationship that is seriously lacking in sexual intimacy. This is only one of the reasons that people are angry today. There are so many reasons people are angry. We see it politically. There's a huge political divide in North America. People are angry over a number of reasons, and we've really never been at a place like this. Well, joining me on the line to talk about anger is none other than Alistair Moose himself. He's the owner at Moose Anger Management. He talks about anger, shame, trauma, healing, and inner child. And he also talks to the dead. Good evening, Alistair. <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> I thought the dead bedrooms. <laughs> I thought the dead bedrooms and the dead and talking to the dead, you know. <laughs> I yeah, talk to the yeah. dead too in a very different yeah. way. I talk to those in dead bedrooms. But you talk to yeah. <laughs> actually talk to the dead. Let's talk about anger first, Alistair. Um what sure. what is anger? What's it all about and why are we living in this world where everybody seems to be angry. I mean, we have road rage. We have, you know, people killing each other. We have people decimating people online. What's yeah, the well, story? And, and, I, and, I, and I don't think that people are learning enough about what to do with the emotions that rise up in them. And anger ultimately is uh, the guardian of our boundaries. Like we're, we're supposed to get angry. If people mistreat us or, or harm somebody or something we love, it, it makes sense that we feel anger. It just depends what we do with it. Either we can be tuned into all the, the, the visceral, the sensations that happen in our bodies and how it shows up in our head, which is a lot of the work we do with people, is getting them to develop a better relationship and understanding of their anger because we're, we're supposed to do something with it, to speak up, to act upon it, but not to react upon it. Generally, when people come to us, they've reacted in a way that um, often goes back, sometimes even generations in their family, but, but, but those reactions were not, uh, it, it wasn't connected to their heart or their head or they didn't just hadn't really thought things through, and uh, there's a lot of stress in people these days. So it seems like people are much more on the edge with all of this. They certainly are. And then there are some people who are told that anger is not a good thing. Like like women, mm -hmm. we're socialized yes. not to get angry. Yet we can get upset. Um, 
I have to say it takes a bit for me to get angry. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't tap into the anger so much. I'm mm-hmm. way too easygoing. People walk all over me. I'm a doormat. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Like, and, 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 and you know what? It drives angry people crazy that I don't get angry. I will tell you. It, it, mm-hmm. it drives them absolutely mad that I, I don't lose it. I just, I'm just like, okay, yeah, well, we'll deal with it. That's it. And people just, I mean, you know, they want me to be screaming back at them and it's just not going to happen. And we actually see a lot of nice guys and nice women, Uh but often what's happened is that they've been too nice and there's anger inside them but it slowly builds up over time and eventually uh-huh. they either have a big blow up or they get sick it, uh-huh. it has a really bad impact on their immune system and they get something going on in their in their stomach their digestive system um what have you i think that you know there's a an emotional component it's not the only part of you know, illness, but there's always an emotional component to it. And some things are certainly uh, impacted when, you know, anger is just held inside. It's not expressed. You know, and I have to say, not not that this is about me. We're going to talk to the dead very shortly. <laughs> but yeah. I have a cold. I, I do have a cold that won't quit. Um, but you know what, my thing is that I see people losing it over, you know, at work or, I mean, I had a friend who just lost it at a party, but I mean, you know, she was completely drunk and, um, just lost it. And I just thought this is ridiculous. And I, you know, I just walk away, you know, it's just, um, but so it's not as though I have this anger that I mean, I mean, I can get angry, you know, it just, you have to cross me the right way, um, or the Mm -hmm. wrong way. You know, but yeah. I, it's just kind of, sometimes I just think people get so upset about nothing and people will react versus respond. Yeah, and that, that reaction is often connected to uh, something going on in the present. You know, so often when people come to me, somebody's died within the last year, they've changed jobs, they've moved, they've, like there's been some major stressors. And often, mm-hmm. if we look farther back, there's some traumas where, you know, their, their parents divorced, uh, they, they moved when they were really young to, you know, a different country, um, you know, or, or, you know, worse things where there's abuse, emotional, physical, et cetera. And, and those things stick in them. And so it's often a combination of, you know, that, that stuff in the past, the stuff in the present, and then they get drunk and it all comes out all at once, not in a way that serves anybody because it's the anger needs healthy expression. And when it all comes out at once, it just adds Ah. to shame and to everything else and pushes people away. And then, you know, then, then people call me. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, it's it's funny. Yeah, that's yeah. that's funny because this particular person's um, parents divorced, and then they were never going to get a divorce, but then they got a divorce themselves. You know, and then they were totally drunk, and 
It's just like, yeah. but then I could see the anger because I just didn't respond. And I just think it's just ridiculous. And I just, anyway, um, but, but yeah, I can see that people build it up and they, and they must have shame um, when they don't process it or talk about it. Well, and, and many of us grew up, I grew up in a family where nobody talked about anything. I mean, hmm. really, nobody talked about stuff. I didn't even know that we didn't talk about stuff because that's just <laughs> what happened all around us. And so right. there's, story, there's stories like we were living in Santiago in Chile in South America, and I was four years old in about 1965, and all of a sudden my older brother and I were taken away and we moved. Uh, my dad flew uh, with us to Holland and dropped us there with an aunt and uncle, and their kids and left us there for six months and then came and picked us up. And in that time, my parents had moved to Vancouver. And so then we came back to Vancouver and it was just like, yeah, this is totally normal. Nothing, nothing to talk about here. (laughs) It's all good. And (laughs) and so I screw up thinking, oh, that's totally normal until somebody confronted me on it. And I got all defensive and angry at at first. And then I thought, wow, that's really messed up. Who, who, who doesn't talk about things like this? Oh, yeah, my family. But my family, you know, there's lots of families that don't talk about things. And then there's these skeletons in the closet. And, you know, like, nobody's ever going to get divorced in our family. We're too good for that. And it's like, yeah, that's probably not a not a good thing to, you know, hang on to. Because, right. you know, thing, things happen. And... Uh, every family has all sorts of different skeletons in the closet. And those are the things that people hang on to, whether it's shame and, um, you know, avoidance and anxiety. And If somebody can actually find a way to resolve these things, not necessarily with other family members, because that doesn't always work so well, but with a therapist or with, you know, somebody trusted or, whatever methodology they want to take, it's like Uh these things need to be addressed and outed somehow so that you can relate to them rather than from them, right? When When they're secrets, then these things just have an impact on our behavior, but it's kind of like they're in the shadows rather than being out there that we can talk about them. If you can talk about it with ease, then it's not not really a problem anymore. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.